All right, well, let's uh, turn to Mark chapter 10 this morning. And while you're turning to Mark 10, I have a, a question for us to consider. If I asked who is the greatest, what kind of a response would we expect to get from the world, uh, from those outside of our midst here? Um, It's obviously kind of a difficult question because it requires a lot of context. But if you are thinking in the realm of sports, there's always differing opinion on who the greatest is, but the criteria seems to always be based around performance who has the best statistics, who has the most championships, who has the most, um, the best uh, trophies or whatever. In the business world, it might be who has uh, made the smartest investments or who has the most brilliant business mind. In politics, it may be who has the most political power um, or who has the, um, the most respect of the majority. So basically, in the eyes of the world, The greatest boils down to who has the most talent, money, power, and performance. And that's how greatness is valued by the world or it's assessed by the world. But what the world values as great is completely different from what God values. Um, Even as believers, though, we can tend to have the world's way of thinking when we consider what matters to God. We oftentimes can begin to equate greatness Uh, in God's kingdom by the same standard that the world has, which is power, performance, and fame. And that's why we need to have our minds renewed as to what the word says about what is great. Um, And so that's what I want to do in this time is to renew our minds with what God's word says about what he values. And the topic that we're going to be focusing on this morning is that of being a servant And so we're going to start here in Mark chapter 10 and begin reading in verse 35. It says this, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. 
So going back here to the beginning of this passage here, we have James and John coming to Jesus with this request. And we don't really get to hear their side of the story as far as what their motivation was. But it seems based on Jesus' response to them that they had a desire for self-exaltation at the heart of their request. They wanted to be seen as great. And it would be a place of great honor and respect to be seated at the side of Christ in his kingdom. And that seems to be what they were seeking, again, based on what Jesus' response to them was. But then skipping down to verse 41. So Jesus um, tells them basically that, no, he cannot give that to them. That is reserved for, um, well, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. But then down in verse 41, it says, hearing this, the ten begin to feel indignant with James and John. So that the, the remaining disciples begin to have this indignation that they would ask such a thing. And I've read some commentaries that say some of that indignation is that ultimately they would have desired the same position that James and John had just asked for. But nonetheless, um, verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. What Jesus is saying is that in the world, the great men show their authority and position by ruling over others. They seek to be in positions above others. No one in authority is a servant. The master is over the servant. The ruler lords their position over those beneath them. So that's what Jesus is portraying in the world. This is what those who seek to be in authority are doing. They're putting themselves over others so that they can rule over them. But Jesus goes on, verse 43 begins, but it is not this way among you. What does he mean when he says says that? It is not this way among you. I think he is saying it is not this way among my disciples Uh, that is the disciples of Christ, or put another way, it is not this way in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, there's a completely different standard than among the Gentiles or among the lost world. And he goes on, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." So Jesus says, whoever wishes to be great shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first shall be slave. What does that mean? Well, I don't think that it means that desire for greatness results in punishment in the form of servitude. You know, if it's discovered that you are seeking to be great, then you're actually going to be punished, and instead of being great, you're going to have to be the one that is doing the serving. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He is not rebuking greatness. He is giving a radically different standard for what greatness is. He is saying that you think that greatness is ruling over someone else, but that's the way the Gentiles think. In my kingdom, the great ones are the ones who are doing the serving. The first in my kingdom is the one who is servant of all. In other words, there are great ones in God's kingdom but they are not seen as great in the eyes of the world. In fact, many times they are the despised of the world, as it says there in 1 Corinthians 1, not many wise, not many mighty, 
not many noble. Those are who God has called. So God is saying that in his kingdom, the one who serves is considered great. Which brings up a question, though. What is it about a servant that is so great? Why does God value the servant so much? And I think the answer is because true servanthood requires humility, and God highly values humility. In James 4, 6, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then in Isaiah 66, another familiar passage, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble of spirit, I'm sorry, humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So God takes regard for the humble. And there are some amazing promises regarding humility. Uh, God says that he will honor and exalt the humble. In James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And then Matthew 18.4, whoever then humbles himself as this child He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So again, you see here that humility is something that God highly regards. It is important to him, and he takes notice of it. And if we want to know what being a servant looks like, we need not look any further than at the life of Christ. Was there anyone who served more than he did? Was there anyone who humbled himself as much as he did? Was there anyone who considered the good of others like Christ did? He is our supreme example of being a servant. And we saw this already in this um, passage here in Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So I want to take just a little time here to consider Christ um, as a one who exemplifies service. So let's turn to John chapter 13, and this is uh, another very familiar passage. This is of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And for the sake of time, I am going to kind of jump in here after he's already washed their feet. Um, We're going to pick up reading at verse 12. So John chapter 13, verse 12, says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And I want to make just a a couple of observations from this uh, passage here. The first thing, notice that Jesus served irrespective of the rank of those that he was serving. They were all beneath him. 
He is the Lord and the teacher, and he even acknowledges that. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. So here he is, the Lord and the teacher, and he's serving his disciples, or you might say the pupils, the students. Uh, He served them. So irrespective of rank, he served them. Notice also that he did not discriminate against anyone. He served them all, and we see that earlier. Um, It was not calculated. More service to the higher disciples, less service to the uh, lesser disciples. He served them all. Then also notice he is not doing this service to receive something back from them. He is not hinting that, you know, I'm going to wash your feet, and the next time you, you wash my feet. He's actually instructing them that they should follow in his example and wash one another's feet. Um, and again, going back to that verse there in Mark 10, it says uh, he came not to be served, but to serve. So his example to us is not so that he would receive something back, so, but it was rather so that we would follow in his example and to serve one another. So if we are going to be like Christ, it's very clear, we must serve. If you want to be Christ-like, then you must serve. Well, I want to turn then to one more passage here and spend a little time looking at it, and it's in Philippians chapter 2. And as we read through this passage, I want to focus in on the characteristics of a servant and also look at how Jesus so perfectly models it for us. So this is Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, What can we learn here from this passage in regards to being a servant? Well, if we look here, it begins in verse 3 with a negative command, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And then it follows with a positive command, but with humility of mind regard one another. And I want to start with the positive first, this positive of with humility of mind. This is the characteristic that is foundational to all the others. If you are going to be a servant, you must be humble. And we already looked at several passages about humility, but notice the wording in this verse here. It says, you must have humility of mind. A servant that is pleasing to the Lord is not one who merely does 
humble acts, but one who has humility of mind. And what this is saying is that God looks at the heart. He doesn't just look at the outward action, but he looks at the heart. And isn't this what is so clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture? God is concerned with the heart. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, um, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that was, of course, spoken about Saul there. But again, it's, it's true in, in our situation as well. God is not looking just at our outward acts, but he's looking at our heart. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has several contrasts of outward compliance versus his standard of the heart. You have heard uh, that it was said, but I say to you, and in every one of those, it's looking at an outward conformity to the law. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit murder. That's an outward thing. But Jesus goes to the heart and says anyone who's angry with his brother is guilty of murder. And again, that gets down to a matter of the heart. So we see that God is concerned not just with outward compliance, but with inward reality. He is not fooled by mere outward service. He looks at the heart. Is there humility of mind? If there is humility of mind, then the rest will follow. So the first characteristic of a servant, at least what I would take here from this passage, is that a servant has humility of mind. And the second characteristic here from this passage, and a lot of these I'll say up front, a lot of these overlap, and I think the reason for it is because there's a repetition. It's um, trying to get something across to us as it brings it out here in these verses. But the second one, a servant must be selfless. And we see this in the negative command, do nothing from selfishness, there in verse 3. The positive of that is you must be selfless. And I was thinking of the word selfless, less of self. You must be emptied of self. Another way of putting it is a servant must be other-centered rather than self-centered. To be other-centered means your focus is on someone else not on yourself. You are not your number one priority. If you are a servant, others are your priority. So a servant must be selfless. And then third, and again, you'll see the overlap here. A servant has a high esteem of others and a low esteem of self. And you see that in the final positive command of verse 3. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And this is a direct result of what precedes this statement uh, in verse 3, where it says, with humility of mind, we are to regard one another as more important than ourselves. If there is humility of mind, there will naturally flow a low regard for self and a high regard for others. Why is it that that gets twisted around, that we have a high regard for ourselves and a low regard for others? It's because of pride. That's why we think of ourselves as more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But with humility of mind, that lowers our view of self and it raises our view of others. Well, fourthly, a servant is aware of others. 
And I'm taking that from verse 4, where it says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. There is an awareness of the needs of others in a servant. And this can only happen when our eyes are off of ourselves and looking to the needs of others. I mean, that's that seems... Very basic, but it's true. If we're consumed with ourselves, then we can't see beyond ourselves. We can't see the needs in others. And a little side note here, uh, thinking about this idea of uh, being self-centered, I often think about selfishness, and you hear that term, selfish. I tend to think of you know some bratty little kid who won't share their toys with their sibling or with their friends. And, of course, that is self-centered, but self-centeredness is much more than just not sharing. It may be more of a subtle form of self-centeredness, being consumed with your own needs in your own life that you are unable to see the needs around you. It is often a mindset on yourself to the extent that you're not aware of others around you. And may the Lord help us that that would not be the case. But instead of having this mindset on ourselves, that our eyes would be um, off of ourselves and upon others. And I want to cautiously, and I emphasize that, cautiously bring up another potential area of self-centeredness. And that is a busy schedule. If we're not careful, our own busy life can cause us to only be aware of ourselves and not be aware of others. Now, obviously, there are seasons in our life with family and work and other obligations that are beyond our control, and I'm not intending to put anyone under bondage about this, but it is worth considering and to, to ask ourselves, are there things in my life that I can cut out that would help me to be aware of others more? Because sometimes it, it, it can be this circle that you don't realize you're getting into where more and more is coming up, more and more is coming up, and then pretty soon it's all you can do to stay afloat just to keep your own calendar going. And may the Lord help us that we would be able to, again, get our eyes off of ourselves and to look to others. Well, how do we see Jesus demonstrate this in this passage? Well, in verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is this attitude that Paul is referring to? And I think it's what he just finished saying in verses 3 and 4. With humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourself. So that's the attitude that we are to have. And Jesus modeled it for us perfectly. And I want to look at just two things here about Jesus uh, from this passage. The first being humility. Jesus modeled humility in that he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. I mean, that's, that's definition of humility right there, emptying yourself. There is no greater example of humility uh, in Scripture than that of Jesus. God becoming man. How does that happen? How does God become man? Well, it happens by Jesus emptying himself. Later, um, verse 8, it says, plainly, he humbled himself. If you want to see humility exemplified, Look at Christ. That is what humility looks like. 
Well, secondly, he had regard for others. So I'm just kind of um, paralleling this with what we talked about for ourselves, humility of mind and then regarding others as more important than ourselves. So in Christ's life, we see regard for others. His whole life was an example of regarding others as more important than himself. And think of the company that he kept. Disciples who before following him were fishermen. He kept company with tax collectors and sinners. He kept company with women. And, of course, again, this is hard for us to think about in this day and age, but at that time they were not regarded very highly in society. And for Jesus to keep company with them showed, again, his regard for others. And even more, he, many of them were notorious sinners, uh, even in the eyes of the, the general public, it's like that person there is a notorious sinner, and he kept company with them. So why did Jesus keep company with these? Because he was constantly pouring himself out for the good of others. He had regard for the needs of others. Think of the woman at the well. There, um, His disciples have left him to go find food, and there he is sitting at the well. This woman comes. He didn't have to engage her in conversation. He could have just rested and waited for the disciples to return. But he took the time to converse with her and point out her deepest need and tell her about the eternal life that only he could offer. His life was an example of regarding others. But far more than his life, he demonstrated regard for others in his death. He died not because of his own sin, but he took our sin upon himself. He died so that we could live. That is what regard for others is. Um, John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one. There's no greater evidence of love than that. And that's what Christ did for us, laid down his life for us. Well, I want to take a moment um, or close here by applying this practically to our own lives. Galatians uh, 5.13 says, through love serve one another. So how are we to do that practically? Well, think about a typical day or a typical week for you. Who do you encounter regularly in your day or in your week? And obviously some categories you might think about, your family, coworkers on the job, friends and neighbors, the brethren here at our meetings, and maybe others that you have regular contact with. So thinking about these encounters, ask yourself these questions. Am I walking with humility of mind before my family, my coworkers, and my friends? Am I denying myself and actively looking for ways to regard others as more important than myself? Well, I do want to take a moment here to acknowledge that the wives and the mothers here in this church live lives of daily service to their families. And for that, we recognize the services, the sacrifices that you make, and we are thankful for you. Uh, Your service is pleasing to the Lord. I was thinking about what it says there in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 
And thinking about that, um, wives and mothers, as you serve your families, you are ultimately serving the Lord, and there is great reward in that. But what exhortation can we give to ones like this, like wives and mothers who are already serving so much? And just two verses that I thought of. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's taken from the ESV. Don't grow weary in your service. God is able to supply you with the grace needed for each day. And the other verse that I thought of is Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Remember, attitude matters to the Lord. He is pleased with joyful service. Well, what about for us men? Are we laying down our lives for our wives and our children? Are we leading by example in service in our homes? Are we regarding our wife's needs above our own? Are we considering our children as more important than ourselves? These are very convicting questions, but it's worth pondering and asking ourselves and seeking the Lord. Well, children and young people, and I know a lot of the kids are in the back, but are you legalistically counting how many chores you do compared to your sibling? Or are you willingly serving with no thought of how much you do compared to others? Are you only doing what's required of you, or are you looking for ways to be a help and to be a servant? And really, that, again, could be a question for all of us. And then for all of us, are we aware of others who may be under burdens and need some fellowship and encouragement? Or are we just consumed with our own lives and oblivious to others? Do we notice when someone is serving alone, and are we taking initiative to go and help? These are things that we all ought to be considering when we gather together. Well, I do want to close with a a verse of encouragement here from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is Paul speaking. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are, in, who are all in Macedonia. And this is verse 10. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And I love how he words that. You have no need for anyone to teach you, for you, you've already demonstrated this. But what's his exhortation? Excel still more. And when I think about this, Uh, as what we're talking about here this morning in regards to service, I really feel like that's applicable to say to this church, we don't need any instruction and teaching on this, but we do need the encouragement to excel still more in this area of service one to another. So may the Lord help us in this area.